Bible. If you don't have one, Christina will help you out, or Tim. Get your Bibles, and let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, verse 13. Actually, let's start in verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed let's pray Father, I ask that as we come to your word, you would crown yourself here and become king, and that you would bring us under your story, where we can be your servants, progressing your kingdom to all peoples, nations, and languages. In the name of your son we pray, amen. Okay, so like I said, we're going through history. We, what we've done is we've taken the 31 most important events of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. And I'm aiming to teach a message on each one and show their connection and what the Bible story, what God's story is up to and where it's going. And each time we're trying to find where we fit in and how it applies to us. Because Genesis is very relevant to you today and so is Daniel 7. So I'm going to try to do that. Um, however, like I said, we've kind of condensed the prophetic section here. And last week we did Ezekiel 37, which basically says God wants to restore Israel. Israel has been scattered. They've been exiled from their promised land. And they're all over. And God wants to restore Israel. He wants to bring them back and establish his kingdom with them. So that they can then go forth with their mission to restore the nations to God himself. And that really is a summary of God's story. You can name it off in this. God's story is the restoration of the nations. Because we started here in Eden, where heaven met earth, and God and man dwelt there together. And then we fell because of our rebellion. We fell, and this is where we are, exiled from Him. But restoration is about us coming back up to where we have fallen from. So that's what you are when you become a Christian. You are actually going back to what man was originally made to be. We're not progressing into some new ageism. We're going back to the original. And that's why, because you're coming back up to where we've fallen. That's why sometimes you guys are feeling like it's too hard. Or like you just don't fit in with the world. And it's because you don't. The world's down here and you're progressing up the ladder of restoration back with God. You're going against the grain. You're going up the mountain, up the steep slope. And so that was um, the restoration of Israel in Ezekiel 37. And now tonight we're going to look at messianic expectation. What the heck is that? <laughs> the Messiah was someone whom the Jews looked forward to who would 
come and be king over restored Israel. So Israel is going to be gathered back together. Remember last week the spirit, or two weeks ago, yes, the spirit breathed into the dead bones and they became to life and Israel is now back to life. They're back in God's plan. And the king is the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and rule over this Israel and lead them to bring the nations back underneath God's rulership. So those are the two main themes of the prophets in the Bible. The prophets say, Israel is going to come back to their homeland and become once again a light for the nations. And second, there's going to come a Messiah who's going to be king over this movement. That's the two main points. That's why I thought we could summarize this section of the Bible with two messages. So let's look at the Messiah and the king. The Messiah is portrayed in many forms, but tonight we're going to look at two of them. The first is this one in Daniel 7, where he's called, in verse 13, one like a son of man. And then we're going to look next at Isaiah 53 and see the servant. That's the Messiah. He's the son of man and he's the servant. So, who are these two mysterious figures? How do they play out in God's plan? We're going to look at all of that. Okay, so Daniel chapter 7. The victorious son of man. Did you guys catch what happens here in Daniel 7? Let me summarize. Verses 1 through 10, what essentially happens is Daniel is in, he's asleep, and he's getting this vision, God's giving him a dream, about what's going to happen in the future. And Daniel sees a sea, and out of the sea comes four massive beasts. Extremely terrifying, he says. And the four beasts are a terror. And then in verse 10, or in verse 9, it says that thrones were set up and God was sitting on them. And God broke the power of these beasts. And then he gave a kingdom to one coming down in the clouds. And it says he's like a son of man. And this son of man rules over this kingdom. It says forever and ever over all peoples of the earth. So, the visions then interpreted in verse 13, excuse me, verse 15. And Daniel's there told that those four beasts he saw come out of the earth represent four kings. Do you remember in Genesis 1 how the Bible starts? Starts with a, a world full of water. And there's nothing there but darkness and water. Now water, well, it looks, the ocean and the sea in the Bible represents evil. Because there's no life there. It, it, it was a scary thing to the Jews. And the world starts with just water. And the Holy Spirit, it says in Genesis 1-2, He comes and He hovers over the water. And then what happens? From the water comes out creation. And the whole world that we see. And man and beasts and animals. Creation comes out of the water because the Spirit moves upon it. But here in Daniel 7, we see the opposite happening. We see the sea, and instead of creation coming out of the sea, Daniel sees corruption. He sees these four terrifying beasts who wreak havoc upon the earth. And these beasts are reminiscent of the very first beast back in the garden. Do you remember the first beast? The serpent? The serpent comes up to Adam and Eve and says, 
God is your king? <laughs> I've got a better idea for you. I'll let you be your own king. You can be your own king. So just rebel against God and be your own king. And they bought into it. And that's when the fall happened. Man decided, I'm going to be my own king. And that's what these beasts represent. They're four kings who are in opposition to God's king, to his kingdom. God comes and destroys them. So, learn this lesson well, that if you want to be your own king, you want to write your own story, live in your own world, in your own story, you don't win. God is destroying those kings, and he's setting up his king for those who live in his story. So that's what the vision basically is. We see this guy named the Son of Man who comes and he defeats the beasts and sets up a kingdom that lasts forever. So, who's this Son of Man? Let's probe into a couple of hints here, okay? First, look at verse 13. It says that he comes, um, he, he's, he comes with the clouds of heaven. It seems that he's heavenly or divine. But on the flip side, he's called the Son of Man. So he's also earthly and human. Hmm. We also see in verse 14 that he's given dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages. So it's a, it's a kingdom that expands the entire globe. We also see in verse 14 that his kingdom lasts forever. It says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This kingdom lasts forever. Does this remind you of a promise God made to David? Remember when we were in 2 Samuel 7? God promised King David, one of your children is going to reign forever over a kingdom that has no end and a temple will be established that will not break down. An eternal kingdom? An eternal king? That's apparently what the Son of Man is going to do. He's going to have an eternal kingdom. So I see the Son of Man as someone whom God is going to send in fulfillment of His promise to David. And His promise to David was that the nations will be restored in that eternal kingdom. And one of your kids is going to rule over it. So we see that this Messiah, whom the Jews were getting excited about, is referred to as the Son of Man. And he's going to have an eternal kingdom. And it's going to restore all the nations to God, because in verse 14 it says it's going to be over all nations. So they're now going to be under God's kingship once again. Not their own, but God's. And the world will be restored under that. So, that's Daniel 7. Now, go to your last passage tonight. And we don't normally do this, but we're doing two tonight. Isaiah 53. <laughs> Go to Isaiah 53. And the reason I'm doing this, it's to your left a couple books or so. The reason I wanted to do two passages tonight, kind of shortcut our bookmark and cheat. Actually, Isaiah 53 is not even on it. I'm cheating. I'm adding it. But um, the reason I want to do this is because you're going to see two completely opposite pictures of the Messiah. We just saw the Son of Man who's victoriously going to rule the earth. What do we see in Isaiah 53? (laughs) Not that. Let's read it. It starts in 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
So now we're talking about a servant. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which he has not been told then they see and that which they have not heard they understand Never chapter 53 who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he this is the servant grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, we didn't care. Verse 4. But surely this servant has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all chosen to live our own story. <laughs> we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's go forward to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And we can go on. I think you guys know this chapter. You've probably read it. It's often read at Easter sometimes or Good Friday. Um, you guys get the point too. What Isaiah is seeing here is that there's going to be this figure called the servant. And we see in chapter 53 is that this servant is going to be brutally rejected and beaten. So in Daniel 7, you have this victorious son of man going to come and rule eternally over all peoples. <laughs> but in Isaiah 53, we see the servant who is viciously beaten. So, so the son of man, victorious over all nations, the servant viciously suffering for all nations. Two completely different figures. Isaiah is um, writing the servant. This is actually, chapter 53 is the climax of four songs. It's the fourth and final climatic song. Isaiah looks at the servant and he sings four songs, or writes, I guess, four songs about him. And the first one's in chapter 42. And I want you guys to get an idea of who this servant is. So if you look at 42. And we see that he inaugurates a covenant in verse 6. 
says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. He's going to give the servant as a covenant. And that covenant is going to become a light for the nations. See, through this servant, God is caring about the nations, all people being restored to himself. And in verse 1, it says that, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, whom uh, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So, the servant is going to bring something to all peoples, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. The second song is in chapter 49. Um, in 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to do what? To bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So, the servant's going to restore Israel. And then in verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the, the preserved of Israel. So, guess what he's going to do? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation, or that my restoration may reach to the ends of the earth. So there we go again. This servant has this restoring mission. The third song's in chapter 50. And look at verse 6. We see that this servant is one that obediently suffers. He says, um, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid my face from disgrace, or I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The point there is that the servant is obedient to God, and God sending him somewhere that hurts, is suffering, and he willingly goes because he's a servant. And then finally, the fourth song is in 53, and that's where we see that he's suffering through rejection, resulting in his death. Now, this servant, who is he? The son of man's a lot clearer. He's going to be this king who reigns, conquers the beasts, and he's in charge. But what, what in the world is this guy? He's going to bring the nations to himself, but he's also going to suffer and die at the hands of the nations. So, so I mean, what it seems like is, all right, come, 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 and then he dies. What's the point? The this, this servant figure's tricky. Because at times, it doesn't seem like it's talking about a person. It seems like it's talking about a group of people. Like, for example, look at 49 verse 3. You see that it talks about Israel. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Israel is the servant. Or is Israel the servant? Because then you jump down to verse 5, and it says that the servant is going to bring Israel back to God. So how can Israel bring Israel back? Right? That doesn't make sense, right? So the servant can't just be Israel. He's got to be somebody else. But he's also called Israel. Are you ripping out your hair yet? You guys are probably thinking, I'm glad you did your homework on this. <laughs> tell me, tell me. Well, this is what I would propose. The servant represents the true Israel. What do I mean by the true Israel? I mean the Israel that lives under God's story. 
Not the Israel who lives in their story and goes and borrows from the nations. Rather, the Israel who's going to try to restore the nations. The servant represents true Israel. And true Israel is going to come in the form of a person. A single person. Who's going to say, I am going to do what Israel failed to do. False Israel. And I'm going to establish around myself a true Israel who will do what I ask them to do. Those who will be servants and be that light to the nations. You guys see where we're going with this yet? Maybe? Well, don't worry. We'll, we'll see in just one second. So, um, one more thing about the servant. is Let's look at his mission real quick. In verse, chapter 52, verse 15. And this might have struck you funny, but I'll explain it. It says, So the servant shall sprinkle many nations. <laughs> and what does that make you think of? I mean, not like he's going to make nation cupcakes and put sprinkles on them. I know. No, I'm glad nobody thought of that. I think the idea comes from Leviticus. Where it says that the high priest went to the altar. When the nation sinned, when Israel sinned and wanted to come back and fellowship with God, the high, be restored, the high priest would go to the altar and take blood from an animal and he would sprinkle it on the altar and God would be satisfied and everybody was happy again. <laughs> so the servant's going to sprinkle many nations. The point is, he is going to restore many nations to God. And by implication, he's going to sprinkle his blood over them. Because he bleeds and dies in the later chapters. Okay, so let's step back one quick second. Because I know that was a lot of information overload for some of you guys. Like, never read the prophets before. Like, oh my gosh, what in the world? Daniel 7. The Son of Man is a victorious ruler. Isaiah 53. The servant is a humble servant sufferer. Victorious ruler, servant sufferer. And both of these are fulfilled in a person named Jesus. Oh, you whispered it. That's so sweet. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong, but I think it's Jesus. <laughs> so sorry. Jesus fulfills both these figures. The victorious ruler and the sufferer. How does he... What in the... What? How? Both. In one shot. For example, Matthew 20 verse 28 combines both these figures in one verse. I love this. It's like, no question, he's doing both these opposite missions at the same time. Only Jesus, right? Matthew 20 verse 28 says this. The Son of Man, where does that come from? Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Daniel. Daniel 7. The guy who's going to rule, right? Jesus is referring to himself. The Son of Man, that's me, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. 
So Jesus stands up and one, one sweeping sentence says, I am the fulfillment of Daniel 7. I'm the son of man who's going to reign victoriously over all nations. And I'm the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And I'm going to be a servant in such a way that I give my life to people. Like eerily <laughs> fulfilling what Isaiah 53 talks about, being beaten and smitten and paying for sins and stuff. So, clearly, Jesus sees himself as both. And it's not just that one little verse we get that from, but many times throughout the New Testaments, you will hear Jesus use his favorite title for himself. Do you guys know what it is? If you read it all over the Gospels, he calls himself the Son of Man. But the Son, he always talks about himself in the third person. But the Son of Man is going to do this. The Son of Man doesn't like that. The Son of Man is here for this. The Son of Man, the Son of Man. 82 times in the Gospels, the Son of Man's used. What is Jesus trying to get across to us? Clearly, I am that victorious king in Daniel 7. That's me. And listen to other ways he says it. In Matthew 9, 6, he says, The Son of Man has authority on earth. Remember, the Son of Man's a king. I have authority to forgive sins. Matthew 28, 18. Right before he sends the disciples to go restore the nations, to go on their missions, to bring peoples to God. He says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go make disciples. And then Matthew 26, 64. When he's standing before the high priest at his trial, he says this to the high priest. The high priest is like, are you the son of God or what? Who do you think you are? And he says, well... I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest knows what he's talking about. Daniel 7, 13, verse 14. You're not God's son. King's going to rule over the world. Crucify him. Blasphemy. <laughs> they go crazy. Here's what's ironic. He says, I'm the victorious king. So they crucify him. And thus fulfill also that he's a suffering servant. Isn't that weird? We don't want you as a victorious king, so kill him. Well, they just fulfill two Messiah roles at the same time. How is he the suffering servant? Well, without being too tedious, I grabbed a few where, where the authors actually quote from Isaiah 53 in regards to Jesus. So obvious connection. There's like no debate. For example, when Matthew talks about Jesus' healings, he links them to Isaiah 53. Jesus is doing these healings because Isaiah 53 verse... Um, <laughs> where is it? It says that we're healed by stripes. Four. He was born of griefs, carried his sorrows, and we streamed him. Where is it, people? Where is it? There it is, verse 5, the end. And with his stripes we are healed. That's what Matthew quotes. Jesus is the servant, healing us. Um... When Jesus was silent about his miracles, they linked that to the servant in chapter 42. The servant there said that he's not going to publish his name on the streets. Remember, Jesus said to people who are healed, Shh, don't tell anyone that I just healed you. A very different sort of king. Um, Jesus' silence at his trial, remember he wouldn't speak and Matthew kept saying, he was silent. He was silent. Three times, he was silent. Because Jesus was silent, like in Isaiah 53, like the lamb that opened not its mouth. And Matthew um, also talks about how the soldiers spit on Jesus' face and struck his head. 
Well, we saw in Isaiah 50 that the servant was going to be beaten in the head, spit upon, and also the, the beard would be ripped out. And then finally in Acts 8, Philip... Remember that one of the disciples of the church, Philip finds this guy riding a chariot. He goes up to him and says, Hey, are you from around here? No, I'm going back to Africa. But I got this cool scroll in Jerusalem. Oh, good. What kind of scroll is it? It's, it's the prophet Isaiah. Oh, wow. I love Isaiah. What part are you reading? I'm reading Isaiah 53. Oh, let me tell you about that. And he says that he connects it with Jesus. So clearly the New Testament sees Jesus as the servant who's going to bring the nations to himself but suffer. So, it's also implied in little things, like John 13. Like heavily implied. (laughs) When he dresses up as a servant and does what a servant does by washing the disciples' feet. And his enemies' feet. And Judas. It's not like he just skipped, oh, you don't deserve it, scumbag. Washed his feet. That's the servanthood of Jesus. So, how is it possible that one person can can fulfill two conflicting missions? How can one person be the victorious reigning king and the bleeding suffering servant? The, The servant is no king in Isaiah. He is just the dirt of the world. And it says nobody even cared about him. Nobody would even look at him. There's nothing attractive. Like kings are attractive. They come in their robes and they come in their, their, um, with their entourage and great pop and everybody. Like, the king. Oh, bow to the king. And everyone didn't say that happened to Jesus. It was just like no one treated him like a king. Two opposites. How can Jesus fulfill both? That's what the Jews wanted to know. Son of man you are, huh? Okay, cool. So you're here to beat up Rome, right? Because the son of man takes out the beasts and he rules over the world. So what are the Jews singing? Son of man, good. The Rome, Rome, they're beasts. You take Rome out and you build this this glorious kingdom forever right now. But he doesn't do it. Eventually they kill him. But I would suggest that his death was actually the way that he became the victorious ruling son of man. When he decided, I'm going to be the servant and carry the cross and be stricken on behalf of many, that in that act of servanthood, I am becoming the victorious ruler of all the earth, the son of man who will have dominion. How is that possible? It's possible if you see Jesus' death not as, not like he was a victim of some sort of an accident, but rather that he was the victor of some sort of purpose and mission. If you see his death as an accident, well, you can't be the victorious king and the servant. You can just be the servant. I died. But if it's a purposeful mission, then he's going into the cross in obedience to the Father's will, which makes him a servant, obeying his master. And he goes to the cross, and he does it. He finishes it. He dies. And if that's the plan, that's called mission successful. That's called victory. 
And so then Jesus doesn't stay dead, but he comes out of the tomb to say, okay, I was victorious over the beasts of the earth called sin, the devil, and man's autonomous desire to rule in himself. And I came out of the tomb, and here I am, the king. And then he gathered the disciples and said, I now have all authority, so go and bring the nations to me so that the kingdom will be ready. His death was the servant and the victorious king. And he ascended up into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and that's where he's ruling and reigning over the earth right now. And you think, that's a terrible kingdom. No, we're in this intermediate, what's it called? Intermediate? Intermittent? Intermission period where where he's ruling, but he's telling us to participate in the kingdom and in the story. Go grab the nations and bring them under my rulership so that when I come back as a literal son of man, where no one will doubt it, to smite that last beast who's still around, the kingdom will cover the whole globe. So, that's Jesus. He is the victorious son of man and the suffering servant, all in one. Here is what I want to ask. Why didn't Jesus just rule? Why did he have to become a suffering servant? Why not just straight to the Son of Man business? Because you're exiled from God... And he wanted to restore you to himself. That's why he became servant. He died for your sins. So then, how do we restore the nations? Same way Jesus did. I'm not saying we are crucified on a cross, because I can't die for anybody's sins. But through suffering... God has chosen to make his message known to the world. That we would stand up and say, Israel rejected her call to be the servant, so Jesus came and fulfilled that for her. And now Jesus says to us, you are to be servants as well. Blew me away when I realized that Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 refers to this very thing. You guys know Philippians 5? Um, I'm going to read it. 5. Philippians 2, excuse me. You guys know Philippians 2, verse 5, says this. Have this mind among yourselves. He's talking about unity and being servants. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus had the same mind that he's calling us to. Who, Jesus, though he was... In the form of God, he did not count equality. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But this is what he did when he came down to earth. He did this. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Where does Paul get that idea? Isaiah, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man, son of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So then what's this mind that Paul asked us to have like Jesus had? What mind is this he's calling us to? 
It's the mind that says, I will be God's servant to restore the nations even if it means suffering. Because that's what servants are. Servants don't seek their comfort and their safety. Servants seek the mission of their master at all costs. And Paul says, have the same mind Christ had for you. Be a suffering servant for the nations. Our sufferings, if done for Christ, and if, if we continue on as servants through those sufferings, will restore the nations to Jesus. Your sufferings aren't in vain. God uses them for a reason if we choose to continue as His servants in them. I'm going to read you a verse from Colossians 1.24. Listen carefully and tell me why it sounds wrong. Colossians 1.24 says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Well, that's weird already. <laughs> I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, as I suffer, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. In short, when I suffer, I am finishing what is lacking in Jesus' sufferings. What the heck? Does that sound funny? Does the sufferings of Jesus incomplete? Is there like anything that I can add to the sufferings of Jesus? Think about that. No way. So what is this saying? It's not saying that Jesus' sufferings are insufficient or that you could add something to them. Rather, what it's saying is that the sufferings of Jesus lack a human representative to the nations that he died for. Jesus loves you. That's nice. But tell them that Jesus loves you while you suffer as Jesus did. And that's more than nice. That's something that people believe. When we're willing to suffer for Him, and we become His servants, and we go to restore the nations, and we keep going even in the midst of suffering, what that says to the people that watch and that are there, and to the people at your school, wherever you're sent to, it tells them that God's story is more fulfilling even in suffering than your story is in safety, comfort, and pleasure. I willfully continue as God's servant through suffering because I have a story more fulfilling than yours while you're getting everything you want. Is that not a statement? Does that not make people check how they're living or what they're living for? When they can see you in suffering and say, how are you so stinking satisfied and fulfilled when i got everything going for me and I'm frustrated? I'm not quite what you are. That's why God is calling us to be servants. Paul says, have that mind. Go be the light for the nations, even if suffering is the result. Carry on as his servant, because you will be part of restoring the nations to God himself. 
And so in my suffering, I am fulfilling, I am showing what Jesus went through to people. Listen to this quote by a very smart guy. His name is C.F.D. Moole. He was um, a Cambridge lecturer in the 1900s, early 1900s, and he was a big influence on C.S. Lewis. So that's our connection. Lewis thought he was smart, so I think he's smart. (laughs) He says this, It is possible that Christ's once and for all sacrifice might be, in certain circumstances, spoken of as repeated in each act of human obedience joined with his. The martyr's own blood shed in faithfulness to the Lord turns out to be the blood of the Lamb. And when their blood flowed, behold, it was the blood of the Lamb. Their sacrifice was united with his sacrifice. Not as though their sacrifice was redemptive or anything. But in the sense that being united, believer and Lord are in that sense one. His blood is their blood. And their blood, his blood. And so as we're united with Christ as his servants... There's a sense when when you bleed, you're bleeding his blood. And that's what you're showing people. When you suffer, you're, you're taking on his sufferings. And that's what the nations are seeing. That's what the peoples are seeing around us. So, how do we become servants? How do we become those who are willing to say, God, I, I'm your servant. I am in your story full on, even if suffering is in the way. That is an important question. Because some of you are sitting here going, (laughs) I'll take the littlest role in the story possible. No suffering here. No. How do we get to the point where this becomes desirous? In short, you need to love his story more than yours. Surrender, confess that God has a better plan than your dinky little career plans or marriage plans or who am I going to like so I can have marriage plans. Check out what Jesus said, Matthew 16. You guys know this, so just listen. Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. What does that mean? That's just language for what we've been saying in this whole series. Throw your story away and take on his and live in it and love it more than yours. That's what it means to take up your cross. To die to self. And to follow him. Matthew 16, 24. And that's what he means at the end in verse 25. If you want to save your life, lose it. Or, if you want eternal life, get rid of your plans and story and follow God's story. Stop being the author. Break the pen and say, here God, you're much better at this. And I will as a servant submit to wherever your story leads. If the next chapter takes me to suffering, I'm still in your story. And I will be okay. 
Because my God is sufficient and He's able to meet all my needs with His grace in those moments. And while He does that, and I have the comfort of the closest sufferer with me, I am also restoring the nations to His kingship. So guys, that's my challenge to you, Tree of Life. Do not run... Do not hide from suffering if it comes. I'm not saying you need to go seek it. Like, oh gee, I'm not a good Christian, so uh, someone persecute me. I'm not saying you need to seek it. But when it comes, don't, don't start sidestepping what you do for God because something might happen to you. You plow through as a servant and realize that God uses your suffering so that they're not in vain, but they bring restoration to the nations. So by losing our life, by giving up our story, we find our story and we find our life in God's story as he seeks to restore the nations to himself. Let's pray.